So as I said, today we are looking at the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you might find it interesting, I mean, in the normal life of the church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly, um, but as a result of the pandemic, we have been celebrating it monthly, the uh, final Sunday of each month. And our, our desire is to get back to weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. And I, and I even thought about having the Lord's Supper today because it almost felt wrong to preach on a passage about the Lord's Supper without celebrating the Lord's Supper. But in a way, I actually think that it will be useful for us as we walk through this passage together to have a week to reflect on the meaning, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, to be strengthened to understand what it is that we do, because they, they say that familiarity breeds contempt. And it's true that sometimes, especially if you've grown up in the church, you have celebrated the Lord's Supper many, many times. It can become so familiar that we stop thinking about what it actually means. What is the significance of this meal? And so what we're going to do today is walk verse by verse through our passage. You could say section by section. But we're going to do that under five headings. Um, that there, this, The Lord's Supper draws us to five aspects of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper points forward, backward, inward, outward, and upward. So again, forward, backward, inward, outward, and upward. And so first, the Lord's Supper points us forward to the future. And that's what we see in verse 14. Jesus discusses the fact that he's celebrating with his disciples at Passover, but then he says that he will not eat the meal again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. He says, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says that he won't drink of the vine until the kingdom comes. And so you say, well, what does that mean, that he's not going to, to eat of the, the, the bread or the cup until the kingdom comes? What, is, what does he mean? And Jesus does actually celebrate a meal with his disciples in Luke 24 after the resurrection. But I think that what Jesus is getting at here is, is he's pointing us to this future aspect, that this forward-facing aspect of the Lord's Supper that, that is pointing us to something yet to come. And you say, well, what is it pointing us to? Well, it's pointing us to a, a great feast that believers will enjoy in the Lord. And listen to a description of that great future feast from Isaiah 25. It says that on the mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so Isaiah is describing this, this future feast and it's a feast where he says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's going to be no more death, no more sorrow. 
He wants us to orient our lives to this future event. And of course, we all orient our lives toward the future to one degree or another. You may say that you're not a person who plans, you're not a person who thinks about the future, but everyone orients their lives to the future in some way. You say, a deadline is coming up, I have to work hard. You say in the fall, it's almost Thanksgiving, I'm excited to, to feast with my family. You prepare. Or you say, graduation is coming up, and so I'm going to try to study hard until the end. Or you say, retirement is coming up, so I'm going to save and plan what that will involve. That we orient our lives toward the future. And in the Old Testament, God himself instituted sacraments, these visual, visible signs and seals, to orient the people of God to future reality. And that's what they would experience when they would go up to the temple or to the tabernacle to worship. And when they would see the animals sacrificed by the priests and they would see the blood, they were having this visible sign orienting them to something that would be in the future. And it was the ultimate coming of Christ as the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And, and what they would see constantly in the sacrifices was this future coming of a Savior to pour out his blood for the sins of his people. And it's the same with the Lord's Supper, that we often think about the Lord's Supper as remembrance, and we'll get there as well. But the Lord's Supper is designed by Christ to orient us towards a future reality, to orient us towards that future feast that I just read about from Isaiah 25, to, to orient us toward what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, to orient us towards the day when Christ will wipe away every tear from our eyes, when we will um, dine with him in complete joy, the, the greatest celebration that we could ever imagine, full of, of joy and gladness. And of course, it is that reality that we see here held out for us in the Lord's Supper. And so that's why people say that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, that it, it strengthens our hope and trust in the Lord. And so as you yourself prepare to take the Lord's Supper next week here in our service, the part of what you're meditating on that you're reflecting on this week and every week where you know the Lord's Supper is coming up is, is saying, what is my true hope? What is the most important day on my calendar? And it's not a future wedding. It's not a future retirement. It's not a future graduation. The most important date on the calendar for every believer is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we have a, a dinner reservation that was purchased by the blood of Christ, and that is what we look forward to. And the more we, we cast our hopes in that place, in that future reality, the more we know what to do even in the present. Because I said that when we orient our lives to the future, think of how much the future drives your action. You're studying because the test is coming. You're working because the deadline is, is coming up. You're saving because retirement is coming. It's the same for us, that, that it's a powerful means of, of confronting and fighting sin in our lives, of seeking to serve those around us to keep where we're going in view. And that's what the Lord's Supper holds out for us. So again, the Lord's Supper points us forward. But second, the Lord's Supper points us backward, that it points us to the past. 
And that's what we see in verse 19. It says that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, as I said, Jesus spoke these words as part of the celebration of Passover, and that for New Testament believers, the Lord's Supper has replaced the celebration of Passover. But Passover also had this forward and backward element, that it, it had a, a forward element in what I was talking about, where they would take the, the blood of the lamb, they would kill it, and they would spread the blood on the doorpost of their home, saying that when the angel of death, when the judgment of God came by the house, that God would pass over the house because he saw the blood that was shed. And of course, that pointed the ancient Israelites forward to the blood of Christ. But for those who celebrated Passover, it also pointed them backwards to something in the past, that it pointed them to God's redemption from Egypt as he brought them out through the hand of, of Moses. And it even says in Scripture that it was a memorial day that you shall keep the feast of the Lord. And he told them that when they celebrated Passover, the children were to say, what does this mean? What does this signify? Why are we celebrating? And the father was to then instruct them in the past deeds of God, in the mighty works of God, that it's a form of remembrance. And this is the same for the Lord's Supper, that, that it points us back to the work of Christ, to the to the work of Jesus shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, in his deep love and compassion for the church, gave us a visible sign because we are forgetful creatures. We are forgetful people. That is why scripture so often says, remember, that we need to remember. That's why we celebrate anniversaries. That's why we celebrate birthdays. That's why we celebrate holidays of of important events in our history, that we will forget those things if we don't have a celebration. And so we found a day of celebration so that we remember, so that we don't forget. And it's the same with spiritual reality. Why do we worship on Sunday? We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, the same reality we celebrate every Easter. And why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because we are remembering the work of Jesus. He says, do this in remembrance of me, that we are recounting the mighty works of God, not just in words, but also in pictures. And so as you think about celebrating the Lord's Supper next week, use the opportunity of the week to meditate on the mighty works of God displayed in Christ, the, the great redemption not from Egypt, but from sin, from death, from the devil. You remember Jesus born on Christmas as fully God and fully man. You remember Jesus dying, bearing the wrath of God against the sins of his people on Good Friday. You remember the, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. You remember Jesus ascending into to heaven, pouring out his spirit at the day of Pentecost, the, the promise that he is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. You remember what Jesus has done, objective reality, history in space and time. And it is that reality that, that strengthens us because the more we remember what Christ has done, the more we can trust him. And the more we can trust him, 
the more we can know that what he says will happen will come about. And the more we know what will happen will come about, the more that we're actually challenged and strengthened to live in obedience, to battle sin in the here of now, to know, hey, God has this great pattern of faithfulness. And so we can trust him today. And so again, the, the Lord's Supper, it's a means of grace. It points us forward. It points us backward. But third, the Lord's Supper points us inward to our hearts. And look at verse 20 in your Bible. It says that, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for that, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. And so it seems strange at first that Jesus, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper, interrupts himself, it almost seems like, to remind them of the betrayal that will come from their midst there at the table. That he, he speaks about this, this cup poured out as the new covenant in my blood, but behold, the hand of him who betrays is at the table. And so why is it that he is, is mentioning his betrayal at this very moment? Well, it's not because everybody knew that it would be Judas. Sometimes we have this image that Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And if you look at paintings of the Last Supper, you know, you kind of would think everybody would just nudge each other and say, hey, I'll bet you it's the guy slinking away in the corner wearing all black. Um, you know, that like, in the paintings, you can always tell just by looking at who is Judas. But that wasn't the way that it was, that for the, for the disciples there at the table, no one knew, no one even suspected that it was Judas. And so they said, who is it? They even began to say, is it I, Lord, that they, they were forced to examine themselves. Am I the person who could betray Jesus? And that's what we see in the Lord's Supper as well, that the Lord's Supper has this element of self-examination. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so Paul wants us to examine ourselves. Jesus wants us to examine ourselves. And it's not that he wants us to live in fear, to, to constantly be doubting our salvation, that we can have true assurance of salvation as believers, but we shouldn't have false assurance. We shouldn't assume that we are true believers without the fruit coming out in our lives. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're able to, to examine ourselves. Does my life line up with the pattern of God's word? And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, or asks the question, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And here's the answer, that it is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance 
love and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so it's picking up the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that it is possible to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so, yes, that there is a sense of memorial, of remembrance in the Lord's Supper, but it's not simply remembrance, that there's something happening in the moment that calls for self-examination and that mishandling is actually spiritually dangerous for ourselves. And during the pastoral prayer, I, I mentioned Ravi Zacharias. Some of you may have followed some of the articles. Um, he was a, a prominent, well-known Christian apologist, a blessing to many people speaking on college campuses around the world in defense of the Christian faith. Uh, and now there's a report from his own ministry that seems uh, pretty much irrefutable that he was living a double life, that, that while he went around the world proclaiming the gospel, that he was abusing women. Um, and it was this persistent pattern. And he passed away not too long ago. Uh, and, and tragically, from, from what we've seen, there, there's no hint that there was repentance or bringing to light what was in his ministry. Of course, that causes you know, great trouble for people who are blessed by his ministry. Uh, but it makes you wonder, when Ravi Zacharias celebrated the Lord's Supper, what was the sense of self-examination? Did he ever consider in his own life what he was doing, what he was keeping secret? Did the Lord's Supper ever drive him to, to see a need for repentance, for turning to Christ? And we don't know what was going on in his heart. But it serves not as the opportunity for us to, to judge others, but for us to examine ourselves, to, to beware lest you also fall, that we have a, a Judas, we have a Ravi Zacharias within our hearts, that we have the temptation of, of turning away from the truth in our lives. And so we're constantly called to self-examination, to examine our hearts, to see if we are in the faith. And so as you prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, use this week as an opportunity for that self-examination. Where are you before the Lord? Are you living in a pattern of persistent, unrepentant sin? Are you harboring bitterness or anger toward another person? And if so, it becomes the opportunity to repent, to seek reconciliation, to do business with the Lord, to do business with a, a neighbor before you come and take the meal, lest you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And it's a, it's a privilege, it's a joy of self-examination, it's a mercy to each and every one of us. So again, the Lord's Supper, it points us forward, it points us backward, it points us inward. But fourth, the Lord's Supper points us outward to our neighbors. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For he who is the greater 
for, sorry, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. And so ironically, as the disciples are celebrating communion, communion with Christ, but communion with each other, this sacrament that was designed to point to the union of believers with Jesus and the union of believers with each other, that rather than practicing self-examination, they started to examine each other, to, to look around and say, who's actually the greatest? Who's the greatest of them all? And sort of the, the mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Um, and that, that's what they're saying to each other. Who is the greatest of the disciples? And Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, I'm now going to rank you all in numerical order of greatness. But what he does is he actually defines the nature of true greatness, that the greatness isn't what the world defines it. It's not what, what you see in, in great corporations or empires, that greatness is defined by weakness, that greatness is defined by service, that, that greatness is defined by humility, by pouring yourself out for others around you. He says that let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. And he holds himself out as the, the example of one who serves. And it's interesting that he says it's not the one who reclines at table, but the one who serves. That it's possible to recline at the table of the Lord's Supper, but to have anger and hatred and animosity towards the people around you, to deny the very meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper, through the way that you treat others around you. But when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should actually lift up our heads to the people around us, that we are united to them by faith, uh, because they're united to Christ, we are united to Christ, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And that's why the Lord's Supper is something that can only uniquely be done in the church in fellowship with other believers. You can't do communion at home with you know, a glass of wine and some bread. That that doesn't work because it's, it's communion, yes, with God. There's that vertical dimension, but also with others that there's a horizontal dimension that, that it shows the the necessity of, of community and fellowship as a means of grace in the lives of believers. And so this week, as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper next week, reflect on your relationship to those around you. Yes, to your neighbors, your family, your friends, but especially those in the church. Do you love those around you? Do you serve those around you? Do you have the posture of one who serves or do you want the posture of one who leads? Because the scripture warns us. It says that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so we were talking about self-examination. That's part of our self-examination. Do we love Christ? Do we love God's law? But do we love 
the brethren? Do we love those around us? That, that is what should characterize true believers. And the Lord's Supper is a means of grace that actually helps us love those around us better. Because sometimes we're sinful, we're humans, we get annoyed by people, um, even if we shouldn't. We even get annoyed by those that we're, we're called to love the most, even in our own family sometimes. That's why family gatherings can sometimes have so much controversy, because we can feel annoyed at the people that we're, we're called to love the most. But when you celebrate the Lord's Supper together, there's something about going up, taking the bread, taking the juice together that you say, okay, yeah, I might be annoyed at this person. I may not even like this person on some level. But we have a, a union, we have a bond in the Lord that, that we are partakers together of Christ. And, and somehow that whittles away at the animosity, at the bitterness. And if it's not, that's again a place of self-examination because it takes a very hard heart to maintain anger and bitterness with those with whom you are celebrating the Lord's Supper that it should soften our hearts as we look to those around us. So the Lord's Supper points us forward, backward, inward, outward. But finally, the Lord's Supper points us upward. It, it points us to Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That, that Jesus, according to Scripture, is still fully God and fully man in one person. And that means that according to his divine nature, Jesus is present with us always, that he is omnipresent. But he's also still fully human. He rose from the dead bodily, that Jesus ministered in his resurrection body to his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven, and he promises that he will not appear again bodily, in bodily form with us, until he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so that means that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that Christ is spiritually present with us, but he's not bodily present with us. Because that would turn his, this, this is something that, that theologians have talked about. It may seem like a complex idea, but it's really important that, that it would make his human nature a divine nature. <laughs> Uh, that that it would he wouldn't really be human if his human body could be present everywhere at every church in the celebration of the Lord's Supper everywhere in the world. But he is fully God. He's fully man, and this is one reason that that we do not we do not believe in the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of transubstantiation. That the, the substance of the the bread and the wine becomes the true physical body and blood of Christ. Um, that's why we don't believe the, the Lutheran doctrine that the bread and the wine actually with under is the true body and blood of Christ. That in, in the sense that, that when you eat the bread and the wine, that you are actually literally physically eating the body of, and blood of Christ. And it's what I was saying, that, that that is not what is taught in Scripture, it confuses the human and the divine nature of Christ. But also, it, it puts the focus in the wrong place. I said that the Lord's Supper should point us upward to Christ, not down here. Uh, that, that 
we're not called to have a worry of, oh, did I, did I, did I spill the body, the blood of Christ, or, or did I drop the, the body of, of Christ, to be, to be focused on, on what we're doing with, with bread and, and wine, with, with, and that, that our focus can become here, which can lead to a form of, of superstition. But our focus is actually on Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And you might say to me then, well, what about John 6? I'm sure that's what you were all thinking. Will, what about John 6? And this is what John 6 says. Jesus tells his disciples, truly, I tru- truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. So you see these these shocking words, especially for first century Jews, that it was anathema to, to eat or drink blood. And he's saying, unless you drink my blood, eat my flesh, you have no part with me. And you say, well, what is he saying? Is he saying that we physically literally eat the body and the blood of Christ. And I don't think that that's what he's, he's getting at. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. That there is a real feeding on, on Christ. But that we feed on Christ by faith. That we feed on Christ through his word. That we feed on Christ through the Holy Spirit. That when we take hold of Christ through faith, it's not our bodies that are nourished, but our souls that are nourished, that are, that are strengthened, that are, are built up. And that's part of what the Lord's Supper is. It's this means of grace where we're reminded of union with Christ, feeding on Christ by faith, his life becoming our life, our life becoming his life, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we see that it then is all about Jesus, that the Lord's Supper points us to Jesus, that, that we look forward in the future to his return. We look backward to his completed work once and for all on the cross, that we look inward. Am I really united to Christ? Am I really bearing the fruit of one in union with Christ? We look outward. We look at those around us. We say, these are people who are also united to Christ. Am I loving them as the body of Christ and showing my love for Jesus in the way that I love others? And then ultimately, we look upward. We look to Jesus in the eye of faith through his word, Trusting him, knowing his intercession for us, knowing his love for us, knowing his righteousness counted to us, our sin counted to him, new identity, new hope founded in him that we receive by grace through faith. Let's pray.